So we're continuing on with this uh, Sermon on the Mount series. In today's American culture, it seems that we're just uh, divided into all kinds of opposing factions. Democrats and Republicans, I promise I won't say any more. Meat eaters and vegans. Camaros and Mustangs. Android and iPhone. Hey, here's a, a three-way. Silverado, Super Duty, and Ram trucks. Harley-Davidson and Indian motorcycles. How about Tennessee and Alabama football fans? Packers and Steelers. Yankees and Red Sox. Braves and Phillies. Where'd Chris go? <laughs> Lakers and Celtics. Coke and Pepsi. McDonald's and Burger King. Cat and dog people. You know, it's often said that there's more division in our country now than there ever has been. But I don't think that's really true. You know, when I was growing up, I remember all the uh, turmoil that took place over the Vietnam War. Sometimes it was violent. And I remember the civil, war civil rights struggles. But you know, before my time, or any of yours, the Civil War was about as bitter a conflict as there could be. It pitted brothers, fathers and sons, neighbors and friends against each other and fighting to the death. And you know, it happened right here in our generally quiet and peaceful little community. I recommend if you get the chance sometime to read Bud Phillips' book, Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee during the Civil War years. It'll amaze you to, to read about the things that happened right here. You know, our nation was founded in turmoil. In the colonies, at the time of the American Revolution, a lot of the citizens were loyalists. The patriots who demanded independence from Britain were very passionate about their cause and frequently they did not treat their loyalist neighbors kindly. But down to this day, you know, we have uh, uh, great division over political and cultural views have become totally polarized. There's not a lot of open fighting, but there is a lot of animosity between different factions. And you know, when people believe that their opponents are bad people, it's mighty hard for them to ever get together and uh, work out their differences and make things better. I believe that makes Jesus very sad, and especially when that kind of thing occurs among Christians. So continuing on with our series, The Summer on the Mount, subtitled Living Counterculturally, we'll take a look at why we need to respect others, a little bit about how to do that. My home scripture for today is Matthew 7, 1 to 6, first six verses of Matthew 7. And I'll put all the scriptures I refer to on screen. I'll be jumping around a good bit. Here's the first two verses. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You know this, at least the first verse, 
is surely the scripture that's most quoted by people who really don't know much about the Bible. And they nearly always use it to mean something that it doesn't mean. They're so, hey, you can't judge what I'm doing. You know, don't judge me, bro. That's not what it means at all. You know, the Bible contains many directives to judge what's right and wrong. Gave us sense to do it. I'm going to quote just one out of Luke 6, 43 to 45, so I don't trample all verses that will be used by others later in this series on Matthew. Jesus said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So there's something we're supposed to judge. Judge a tree by its fruit. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't judge others' behavior. But he sure is saying that we must not use one standard to judge ourselves and another to judge others. We will be judged by the same standards by which we judge others. And now, I'm going to get a little personal here, and I'll tell you that I'm keeping up my perfect record that every time I've gotten here and spoken, I've spoken about something that I need to hear and take to heart and practice too. We all do. Do you ever become impatient with other drivers on the road? Does this look a little familiar? <clears throat> Do you ever say or think rude, disrespectful things about other drivers? If you do, you're certainly not alone. George Carlin, who is very seldom quoted in sermons, uh, <laughs> said, Have you ever noticed that anyone driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone who drives faster is a maniac? Have you ever had someone aggressively ride on your bumper for a while and make you very uncomfortable? Did you say or think something like, get off my tail, you maniac? And then, when an opportunity opened up for them to pass you, did they go by and wave their fist at you or maybe raise a finger and yell at you, idiot? You know, this is an example at earthly life verses 1 and 2. The other driver judged you the same way that you judged them and uh, it didn't make you happy, did it? Bet it made you angry that they insulted you after they'd already offended you by their tailgating. And uh, they showed that they did not respect you in the same way that you had disrespected them with your thoughts and words. Uh, both of you were in the wrong. And the other driver judged you by the same measure that you used to judge them. Hey, a few years ago, Michelin North America did a survey of drivers. And the great majority of them said that they don't trust other drivers and that they often see other people on the road doing dangerous things. But 81% of the respondents uh, rated themselves excellent drivers far superior to most others. Okay? 
We tend to think pretty highly of ourselves, don't we? And we often don't respect others. But Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. And while experiences like this road rage example that I've given here, uh, they illustrate the principle of being judged as we judge others, it goes far beyond this earthly life. As Chris reminded us two weeks ago, in the model prayer that Jesus gave us, he says in Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Whenever we recite the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God the Father to forgive us in the way that we have forgiven others who have done us wrong. And you think about that. Some kind forgiving people will be blessed if God does exactly that. But there are many of us who are calling down a terrible curse on ourselves if we ask God to forgive us the way we have forgiven others. And Jesus made this point even more strongly right after the model prayer in Matthew 6, 14, 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Hey, we must take this seriously. Jesus said it twice. We better listen. Jesus isn't gently admonishing us to be uh, careful to not judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves and to be forgiving of others. But he's warning us that God will judge us the way that we judge others. And later on in Matthew's Gospel in verses 18, 21 to 35, he tells the parable of the unmerciful servant. And I'm just going to summarize it. There was a servant who owed his master an enormous amount, more than anybody could possibly pay back. So the master was going to sell this servant and his family into slavery. And the servant went to the master and he fell on his knees and he begged him, please, please don't do that. Give me time and I'll pay it all back. Well, the master felt sorry for him. He took mercy on him and he forgave the entire debt. But then that servant left and he ran into another servant who owed him a much less amount and he grabbed him and he choked him and demanded, you pay it all back to me right now while the other servant begged him for time to pay him back. He didn't take mercy on him as his master had and when the master heard what that servant had done he sent orders, throw him into prison, torture him until he pays back every penny. And then in verse 35 at the end of the story, Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I think when Jesus says something three times, we really better listen. That's serious business. And we have to respect others to be able to judge them fairly as we would judge ourselves and as we want others to judge us and to be able to forgive them as God wants us to do. We all too often pass snap judgments on others. A first impression based on their appearance or their clothing 
or their accent, their mode of transportation, other things that are really just trivial. They can make us think that we know all about that person, their lifestyle, their motives. And usually it's negative, and usually it's way off base. Let me tell you about something that amuses me to think about. In eight, 1988, I went to a, a big uh, conference, convention, on teaching medical interviewing techniques at Harvard Medical School. And during that week, we worked in small groups with professionals from around the country, and we'd all get together in a big assembly and have lectures. It was all a good time. I had a great time. I learned a lot. But at the end of the week, there was a PhD clinical psychologist that I'd worked with in our small group who hailed from a northern state, incidentally. And he came to me and he hugged me. And looking at me with tears in his eyes, he said, thank you for teaching me that someone who talks like you can be really smart. <laughs> okay. I thanked him for the compliment, but I was astonished. You know, with all of this man's education and all of his experience uh, with patient care and teaching in clinical psychology, he still held a bias that people with a southern accent are intellectually inferior. I think he'd been watching a little too much of Jethro Bodine on Beverly Hillbillies and Gomer Powell and Lil Abner and Snuffy Smith. But don't we all have biases like that one way or another? How often when we're sitting in a parked car do we smile at people walking by who are attractive and well-dressed and we see somebody coming who looks a little rough when we just reflexively hit the lock button? Prejudice literally means prejudging. We're judging somebody before we've heard the evidence, often by much stricter standards than we would judge ourselves before we've had any experience with them. And James strongly warns us about doing this in the church in James 2, 1 to 4. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit here on the floor by my feet, have you not dis discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Going back to Matthew 7, moving along, here's verses 3 and 5. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, Jesus often exaggerated things to make a point, and he used humor to, to get his point across, and I think his, his disciples and all the receptive listeners sort of chuckled at that idea of a man with a big old board stuck in his eye. I doubt the Pharisees were laughing. Now, obviously, he was illustrating a hypocrite 
who was trying to help somebody with a relatively small problem while he had a great old big one that he didn't even know about or wasn't doing anything about. You know, Jesus grew up with his dad, a carpenter, and he would have been trained as a carpenter just as well as Jesus, I mean, as Joseph possibly could have. So Jesus was familiar with things like lumber and sawdust and splinters, and Jesus would have known from experience something I've seldom heard mentioned about this story. If you get a speck of sawdust in your eye, you're in serious distress. Hey, it may be a tiny little thing you can barely see, but it gets your full attention. And you can't really make any progress with anything until you get that out. And it would have been very, very difficult for someone to remove themselves, especially in a time and place where they didn't have mirrors all around and running water and stuff. You had to have somebody to help you, somebody with experience and a clear eye and a steady hand to help you get it out. In that time in Judea, when a person had spiritual problems, the only place they could turn was to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And you know, I'll bet Jesus was looking them right in the eye when he told that story. Because when somebody came to them for help getting the, the speck out of their eye, they were the hypocrites, as he directly told them. They had bigger spiritual problems, especially the sins of, of pride and arrogance. There was no way that they could help anybody else out until they dealt with the sin in their own lives and, and got closer to God. And you know what? That's an important warning for leaders in the church today. We need to look to ourselves and clean up our lives and get closer to God so that we can be equipped to understand and help others with their problems. And you know, I said that about church leaders, but really, all of us Christians have an obligation to help and guide others. So this applies to everyone. Hey, don't you just hate it when somebody does something that really gets under your skin and you get mad at them and you judge them harshly and maybe say things you shouldn't? And then you realize, hey, I've done that. Or maybe later on you catch yourself doing it. Well, Romans 2, 1 to 3 says this. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So how can we do better? I think we make most of these mistakes when we react hastily, don't give it much thought, and, uh, and quickly judge others, especially when we're angry. And there's a really good guideline for it in James 1, 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The old adage to keep quiet and count to ten before responding 
is a really good one. And if you haven't settled down after counting to 10, it's a good idea to count some more. And try to understand why the other person is saying or doing what they are, because in their mind, they're just as rational and in the right as you think you are. And you know, we often feel so strongly about something that we think no rational human being could possibly believe otherwise. Or we think they're evil. But you know, they may be thinking exactly the same thing about us. So, slowing down, trying to calm down and trying to understand uh, can help a lot, and silently praying can too. I think it was Sam Brummett that stood up here once and said that when he is going into a situation that he believes is going to be difficult, he silently prays, Holy Spirit, take over. And you know, since I heard that, that made an impression on me, and I've tried to do that, and it's helped me a lot, and especially in my work. And another thing that I came up with that really helps me when I remember to do it before just quickly snapping back at someone. This is another person for whom Jesus Christ died. Now that puts things in a different perspective and you have to respond differently. And it sure does help if when someone raises their voice, you lower your own. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. And now we come to the last, and I think the most challenging verse of this passage in Matthew, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Hey, this is a hard saying of Jesus. And how does that fit in with the rest of what we just read? What does he mean by dogs and pigs? And what are our pearls? Well, you know, I've read a number of commentators, and they don't all agree about all this, but I'll tell you what I think. Dogs in ancient Judea weren't pets. Uh, we shouldn't think of them as we do our dogs today. Here's one. This is not Fifi the Poodle. And uh, whenever dogs are mentioned in Scripture, they're representing something very negative. For example, 1 Kings 21-24, the prophet said, the dogs, eating those, dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. That was the ultimate disgrace for the body to be left unburied and be eaten by these unclean animals. Dogs were savage brutes. They weren't tame and friendly. They were liable to attack you. In Psalms 22, which foretells Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before, we find these verses mentioning dogs. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Skipping over a lot of other negative references to dogs, we come to the final one. Speaking of the new Jerusalem and God's new earth, Revelation 22:15 says, 
outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So ultimately, dogs represent the unholy who will be shut out from the presence of God. Pigs, as well as dogs, are unclean animals that the law of Moses forbids eating. The pigs Jesus refers to aren't precious pets either. This isn't Arnold. They're dirty, rude, noisy, smelly beasts that tear up the ground and they're liable to attack you. And both animals were scavengers living on whatever scraps they could find anywhere. And both seem to represent those who reject the gospel. You know, we're ordered by Christ to preach his gospel to all people. We call this the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Not everyone will be receptive to the gospel. Some will reject it and laugh at it, but over time, something will convince them and they'll come around and accept it, as I did. But many have their hearts hardened, and they'll never accept Christ. The pearls represent what is most valuable to us, our knowledge of Jesus, of God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in its joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When someone has heard the gospel but is not willing to accept it, there's no point in trying to teach them about Bible pearls, the verses that give us wisdom and comfort help us so much in life. Going back to the Great Commission, I want to point out that the commands Jesus gave us are in a sequence. One, go and make disciples. Two, baptizing them. Three, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. It's useless to try to teach Bible principles to those who reject God. God doesn't expect us to. Sinners are going to sin. It's what they do. We're not commanded to stop them from sinning or to teach or enforce God's rules on them when they don't even believe in him. As with the wild, nasty dogs and pigs of Jesus' illustration, they'll trample our pearls underfoot, turn and attack us, and as Jesus said, they're likely to rip us to pieces, figuratively, or in some places and times, literally. You know, I previewed this for my uh, wise and witty wife, and she summed this little section up this way. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. I thought that was pretty good. You know, I know a good many people who have rejected Christ and who are bitter and blame all the troubles of the world on religion. And they don't want to hear any spiritual advice from us. They mock our thoughts and prayers. They get angry when they're preached to. 
But I remain friends with them, and they know I'm a Christian. And I hope that by being friendly and supportive and uh, being a good example to them without pushing my beliefs on them, I hope that some of them will eventually come to seek and find Christ. This is showing respect to them. And they respect me uh, for treating them that way. I've had hardcore atheists ask me to pray for them when they were facing severe troubles. And I believe there's real hope for them to come around. Like I say, I did. I used to be like them. Arguing with them only makes them more resistant and drives them away further from Christ. Respect encourages receptiveness. I believe that there's far more hope for enemies of God to turn around and accept him than there is for someone who's self-satisfied and apathetic who says, hey, I'm just as good a person as anyone else. They don't see a need for a savior. What are you going to do to convince somebody like that? But as Jesus taught us in verses 1 to 5, we must be sincere and real. Nothing turns people off faster than hypocrisy. And if people ever make that judgment about us, it's awful hard to ever change it. So here's my connection point. If we respect others by being fair in our judgments toward them, being sincere, avoiding hypocrisy, and we avoid throwing our pearls to those who are not ready or willing to accept it, we'll please God, we'll live more at peace with others, and we may bring others to Christ.